Blog Talk Radio. Radio Inside Edition. Today is May the 12th, 2018. We'd like to say thank you to everyone for joining us, however, wherever, and whenever you listen to the show. It's always great to have you a part of Suspense Radio, because without you, there would be no reason to do this, because I would just talk to myself in the bathroom. So we got a great show for you today. We are looking at, coming up first, our great friend, John Land, who's going to be talking about his latest adventure, uh, the Murder, She Wrote books. It's called A Date with Murder. Then we're going to hit Matt Ginsburg, and then we're going to talk to Seamus Hefferman, and that's going to take us up to the break here, uh, that take us to the end of the show. Remember, all of our shows are brought to you by Kensington Books. Please make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information on all of their work and all of their authors and everything else. The latest issue of the magazine came out a couple weeks ago. If you haven't seen it, it's all over Twitter. It's around Facebook and stuff. You can search it. You want to email us, get a copy, editor at suspensemagazine.com for all that when it's about any of our guests or anything else, radio at suspensemagazine.com. So let's kick it off here, like we said, with our first guest, our very, very good friend, John Land, who decided to do something a little different than you might have expected uh, the Caitlin Strong creator to do. So, Mr. Land, thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing? Mr. Rob, it's great to be here. How are you out there on the sun- in sunny California? I'm doing good, and it's not even sunny. Now we got cloudy California, 66 degrees, but I can't complain because I think the Northeast just finally broke out of your thaw about a week ago. So, uh, you know, exactly. I mean, the ice, <laughs> the ice has finally melted. Uh, we 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 crossed the 60 degree mark for the first time. It felt like, yeah. but hey, you know what? Uh, I, I I live here because I want to, so I can't complain. Yeah. It's all good though, you know, and. I think a lot of people are going to sit there and go and, and, and pick up Murder, She Wrote, A Date with Murder, which just came out May 1st in all formats you want to buy it on, and they're going to go, John Land? Now, wait a second. He, he's the thriller writer, right? He's the Caitlin Strong. He's the fast-paced kind of thing. So w- what is he doing on, on the whodunit? So I guess that's kind of the first question, besides we kind of talk about the book. Got to let us know, how did this come about? Well, you know, one man's one man's disappointment, one man's um, something that happens bad to one person, something happens good to another. And Don Bain, who had written 110 books, think about that, yeah. 110 books. Maybe I think it even might even be more. And he's a terrific writer and a, and a wonderful man. Um, I met him through my agent because Bob DeForio represents both of us. And I got a call, and this is actually the one year, virtually the one year anniversary of the phone call. And Bob called me and said, you know, um, Don's having trouble completing the contract for the latest uh, Murder, She Wrote books. Would you be interested in working with him on the three he's under contract for and then succeeding him? And I I thought about it for five seconds. Uh, Of course, being a thriller writer, there was absolutely (laughs) no chance I could pull this off. And then I said, of course I am. Yes, count me in. 
Because in this business, John, you have to balance the creative with the with the realistic with with, with business acumen, some degree. There are business realities and there are creative realities, and sometimes those things cross. But you can never turn down an opportunity in this crazy business. And here's the other thing. Caitlin Strong is, is a brand, and I'm lucky enough to be associated with her and, and the thrillers in which she stars. But Murder, She Wrote is iconic. Murder, yes. She Wrote has 100% name recognition. When you ask anybody in the street, have you ever heard of Murder, She Wrote? They're going to say, oh, yeah, the TV show. They might not know the book yep. series, but they know the TV show. The opportunity to take over not only a thriving series of books with 40, uh, 40, 47 titles in them, 46 titles in them, um, was remarkable anyway. And, and then you don't, that doesn't even, that discounts the fact that it was based on something that creates this incredibly strong brand. Um, and so the first, so yes, it, it, it wasn't necessarily my wheelhouse, but also in reading some, you know, in reading a few of the latest ones, um, I saw some things that I thought I could do better. I saw some things that without reinventing the wheel, I thought I could balance it. I thought I could give it that old front end alignment and ratchet up the pace a little bit, um, increase the suspense, put Jessica a little more in jeopardy. Does this make it a thriller? I, I've given up trying to define the difference between a mystery and a thriller because the line is so narrow between them. So, But people could justify, including you, say to me, well, you're not describing a cozy. And that's what these books are marketed under, and that's how right. they become so successful. They're cozies. But here's my answer to that. The definition of a cozy is not so much based on um, the plot and the story um, and the how pace. much jeopardy. It's based on a familiarity with a cast of characters and perhaps most importantly, a setting. I did some research, and I found that the one thing almost every single cozy series has in common, and I didn't look much beyond this, to be very honest with you, is mm – -hmm a singularity of setting. You take a village, you take a city, you take, normally it's small towns, it's villages. Right. It's it, A cheese cozies, shop, a flower shop, yes, things like that. Yes, cozies take us back to the world before the big box stores were on every street corner of suburban America. It takes right. us, cozies take us back to a time where, you, where, where everything was simpler. And it's Norman it's, Rockefeller. It, it Norman, you're at, you know that's a great way of putting it. A cozy, it's Norman Rockefeller. That's what yeah, it is. A cozy, you're absolutely right. A, a cozy is a Rockwell, and a thriller is a Picasso because you've got to yep. put all the dots together. And that's actually a great way um, of looking at it. So what happens in that town, and what unfolds in that town to me, well, how you define the events is secondary. To, to where the events are taking place and who the events are, hap are happening with. Um, the thing I find most interesting in reading – the other thing I did with this series is I, I read uh, with some trepidation because I knew it was going to come back and hit, and hit me, Amazon reviews. And with a series, Amazon reviews can be very, very helpful because people leaving the reviews are normally ardent fans. 
and you start to realize what what people missed in in the last few books what they what they thought could be do, done better what what let them down a little bit and i got to tell you i'm doing the same thing now um the, i'm 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 over the top with the response to a date with murder i can't believe the response it's gotten but there have been some negative responses from classic readers and sure. and you know uh, you, so you, you for for readers who are ardent and i i read their criticisms Every one of them saying, okay, was this a mistake on my part? But, I, but the, one of the difficulties I had, and this gives, goes to the point of, 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 of picking up a series like this, is was I writing the TV series or was I writing, was I continuing the book series? Well, my mm-hmm. familiarity is much closer with Murder, She Wrote, the TV series. And it was the head writers on Murder, She Wrote, Levinson and Link, Richard Levinson and William Link, although it might be William Link and Richard Levinson. I always get them confused. Right. They also wrote arguably the finest mystery television show ever written, which was Columba. Yep. So I remember Murdy, she wrote, being of un- uncanny quality for television, way ahead of its time. And it also was... Even before there was Law and Order, and this is what people don't respect about Murder, She Wrote, because you think of Angela Lansbury, you think of Cabot Cove. Murder, She Wrote, begot Diagnosis Murder, The Law and Harry McGraw, uh, and any number of other shows that had exactly the same format. So it was a groundbreaking show, phenomenally successful. So because I was more familiar with the show, I made the decision to write Jessica as I knew her as Angela Lansbury. I didn't write her um, as true to the books um, as, may, as maybe some of the readers would have wished that I did. And this creates an interesting gray area because people, one of the comments on Amazon I've read is where's in- Chief Inspector Sutherland, you know, from, from Scotland Yard. Um, you know, why wasn't he in a date with murder? Well, of course, he hasn't been in, t- in the last six or eight books anyway. So no, why I, would he have been in that one anyway? Yeah, but, but well, the whole point was pe- because people like him, and they like the relationship between George Sutherland well, and Jessica yeah. Fletcher. So, so you know, now I ask myself, you know, do I do I kind of create a hybrid? Because George Sutherland, this is just an example, and I know you have a lot of writers out there um, who listen to the show. So this is an interesting lesson. Yeah. George Sutherland was never on the television show. He was created by no. Donald Bain. So yeah, he was never on. What the show. do I do now? On the other hand. I bring uh, there's there are characters in the in the TV sh- in the TV show that I exploit to a degree mm-hmm. that um, and I and I'm trying to recapture their essence you know from the television show I think Mort for example is much more Mort. like the my Mort is much more like the Ron Masick character um, it is who was yeah. on the TV show and it's funny because some of the criticisms that have been leveled against the date with murder are the banter between Jessica and Mort. And, and people, a couple readers, you know, have found Jessica a little snarky. They said, well, this isn't the Jessica that I remember from 18 months ago when the last book came out. And they're not wrong because the Jessica's, the tone of Jessica in the TV series was TV dialogue. It was sharp. It was tart. It was, you know, it, it was defined by this great reportee between the exchanges between Mort and, and Jessica and Seth Hazlitt and Jessica, it's mm-hmm. familiarity. So, so 
the thing. And there was some that, snarkiness and Jessica between those three characters. And believe me, there was a lot of snarkiness between her and other detectives or law enforcement that she might only hit once. Yeah, there was. People got to remember that. Yeah, and I think you know, I, I yeah. think there's there's a tendency. So, you know, it's it's trying to have it both ways. And and this is it's funny yeah. because when you think of great adaptations of books. Um, and this is the reverse. This is a book from this is a TV show into a book. But the only pure James Bond movies that were made were the first five. They were the only ones that resembled the books that Ian Fleming wrote. After that, it was just the titles. That's all it was. Right. They just it was used just them the as titles. They, they just used them as an outline. Yeah. Now, when I started, when I took the series over, see, I I had one advantage that. Um, one thing that, that I felt right from the beginning qualified me. The first books I fell in love with as a kid, well, I, the James Bond series I read in order, in, in chronological order, in one summer camp, in one summer at, at Camp Samoset up in Maine. I read them every, um, every rest period, and before I went to bed at night, it was like a ritual. Um, and I remember the branding of those Bond books. They all had the same covers, just slightly different color schemes. Um, yeah. and, I, and, and I just loved going from one to another. Well, I also love reading Agatha Christie. I can still remember oh, yeah. the ABC murders. I can still remember some of the Miss Marples, but especially the Hercule, the Hercule Poirots. I remember oh, yeah. reading, um, you know, Rex Stout, Nero Wolfe. I remember reading in French. When I studied French in high school, I read George Simenon, uh, Inspector mm-hmm. McGray in French. And they were, uh, so I had this background in traditional mysteries which were which were um some were hard-boiled um so when i took the series over murder she wrote series over from from donald bain um after he just couldn't he wasn't well enough at the time to even work with me and his health you know his health really deteriorated so that gets back to your first question and how i this became pretty much um a solo act although Don's grandson, Zach, has become a great resource for me and has really, really helped me with the institutional memory. But I knew that I wanted to write an Agatha Christie kind of mystery. I wanted to do the kind of things, the pacing of of her mysteries, the idea that every time Poirot finds one clue, something else happens. There's another murder. Uh, And then there were none. Um, One of the things I'm planning to do in the very near future is is Jessica's version of Ten Little Indians, where yet you were 12 strangers at a motel or something, one at a time get murdered. And, you know, those kind of mysteries I, I absolutely love. So I brought to this series... The feeling of Agatha Christie, the feeling of, um, you know, Don Mc, you know, Ed McBain at times, some of his series that he did under so many different names, the classic mystery writers, even a little bit of, 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 of uh, uh, you know, of uh, Ross McDonald, you know, who I loved, um, and you know, and the, and the and then the other McDonald, you know, there's so many, and John D. McDonald. How can we forget Travis McGee? Um, oh yeah. Because this, to me, was the tradition. Because here's the other thing, John. Again, a lot for the writers out there. I had never written in first person before. And mysteries, Spencer, you know, the Robert Parker books, almost all the great private eye novels, which is where this all comes from to to some degree, the the American tradition anyway, from Dashiell Hammett, um, you know, the the Philip Morrow character, the Sam Spade character. uh, So Raymond Chandler's, you know, his great work. So what I set out, 
Yeah, Mickey Spillane, great example. Those were yeah. first person. You know, Mike Hammer. Um, so this was the tradition I was writing in. But very important caveat. I never forgot I was writing about Cabot Cove. I was writing about Jessica Fletcher and her entourage. I didn't want to reinvent the wheel. No better comment was made about the series and television than the mistake of, of leaving Cabot Cove in the TV series because people had come to see that as their second homes. Now, one thing you're yeah. going to see, and this is one of the criticisms on Amazon I shrug off. One of the things that I love, that I'm having a lot of fun with with this series, is because it's been frozen in time so long. What would Cabot Cove be like today compared to what it was 20 years ago? Well, if you look was, at uh, I was going to mention that. That's the one thing I noticed very early on in the book. You put it into the future. Because I was sitting there reading, and I was like, there's an Uber in Cabot Cove? Absolutely. And I'm like, that's John Land right there. But, but it's not just John Land. You have to be true to your audience. Right. In a, even in a cozy, Cabot Cove can change. There is not a single – and I live in New England. I used to mm-hmm. spend summers in Maine. I witnessed firsthand what happened to those lakeside, you know, t- but you know, Lake Winnipesaukee, that's in New Hampshire, but Sebago Lake in Maine and the coastal villages um like Kennebunkport that at one time were like Cabot Cove and now you you know, they're, now they're like the Hamptons. And I think it's going to be fun how Jessica struggles with the evolution of the town that she loves. You know, yeah, I mean, she struggled in the TV show just getting a computer. I mean, that was like a year <laughs> yes, worth yes. where she's like, see, you hit the lead. It's all gone. Drive. Like, no, no, no. It's okay. You can get it back. I mean, there was, there was literally like two episodes of hers just learning the computer with the murder going on in that setting. So, yeah, she, didn't, she was not a big change person. <laughs> no, and, 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 and here's what I talk about keeping this series a cozy. In both A Date with Murder and the next installment, Manuscript for Murder, we, you know, Jessica loves, even though she's, she has, you know, um, even though she's got her home office and everything, she loves going to the library. Because first of all, she yeah. loves the Cabot Cove Library and Doris Ann, um, you know, the librarian that she's very close with. Right. Um, she likes doing things the way she used to do them. But the fun of writing her in this new mode is she is not changing. She is still the same character who drives, rides a bicycle around Cabot Cove. But mm-hmm. now that even makes more sense. I think one of the things you just gave me an idea, one of the things I think I'll do in the next one is she's not the only person doing it anymore. Because traffic can get so bad in the summer in these towns. Mm-hmm. Because they were built as one-horse towns. Literally. Those are how narrow the yeah. roads are in a lot of these villages. They were built as one-horse towns, and now the population... In, and I'm I'm from Rhode Island, so I've seen Block Island. I've seen Martha's Vineyard. I've seen a place mm-hmm. called Prudence Island. I've seen Nantucket. You know, I grew up in a time where nobody knew what these places were. Nobody had ever heard of them. They were small. They were islands that that they were like the Jersey Shore. I mean, people just went there. Now you can't. Right. Now normal people can't afford to go there. So this is going to be. This is a character point. This is a plot point. This is what a story is. It has conflict. Cozies have conflict. Sometimes it's, it's defined a different way. So I'm kind of making a pact with the audience. I don't want to lose the book audience. I don't think I will. 
But if you stick with me, you're going to get the same. It's kind of what, what Samuel Goldwyn said when, they, when somebody asked him what he wanted for this year's big movie back in the day when he was running MGM. I want the same thing, only different. And that's kind of what I'm trying, what I want to do. I want to grow the series, I want, but I don't want to grow the characters, if that makes any sense yeah. at all. I want the characters to stay the same. But that said, now that said, and I, I'm really curious. John, you're a big fan of the series. Oh, and I'll yeah. give a little, little spoiler alert for Manuscript for Murder, which is coming out. It's great. We can talk about it now. It's, 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 it's coming out in five months in November because these books come out every six months, which is great. You know, well, as soon as you got the, as soon as you got it ready, send over so I can review it. Well, as soon as I have, uh, you'll, you'll be the first person, like always. I send the galley to. Uh-huh. But in manuscript for murder, um, the you know, Cap, we, we see Cabot Cove evolving in an entirely different way, a little bit. But we also learn that Mort Sheriff Mort Metzger was in Vietnam. Whoa. We didn't know that before. We never knew like, that before. No, but but this is the thing. Jessica, you can the, the great thing about being about having a great relationship, friendship is you never stop learning things about the person. And I think it's fun to get new twists and takes on character. In Murder in Red, the one I'm about to start, a private hospital/clinic sets up shop just outside Cabot Cove. Well, Seth Hazlitt has basically been the only doctor in Cabot Cove. He's kind of like from the Lassie era when you still had party lines and crank phones. And all of a sudden, his patients are leaving him to go to this private hospital. What does that do to Seth? So when you say you couldn't believe it. And Seth is one of my – he's probably my second favorite character in the the TV. Well, it was William – did William Wyndham play him um, for a while? Um, he only television. was played by one guy. I think it, um, I think it was William Wyndham. Let me see. I'll um, see what his name is. I, yeah, I'm not 100% yeah, sure. Um, but that was also a great cast. I yeah, mean, William Wyndham. Yep. Yep. Claude Akins was in it for a while. Um, yeah. I of mean, course, you, you, you know, Amos Tupper was Tom Bosley, and he was in it for the first yep. four seasons, and then he left. And, and, and he was the original sheriff of Cabot Cove. He was the original, and they moved to Kentucky. Yeah. Now, that would be interesting to bring him back. Oh, and, dude! And, if I, I I would love to see Amos Tupper come back in some way or fashion, or Jessica go out and visit him, and something you, were to happen. You know, oh, it's, yeah. it's it's interesting, and this is I, I would almost like to take a poll. Now, if I bring Amos Tupper back, I'm marrying more of the series because he never appeared in any of the books. No, if, he never if did. If I bring if I bring George Sutherland in, now I'm mar- now I'm doing something that the TV series never did. In the first book Don Bain wrote, and I don't mean to, gi- to give Don a slight at all, because like I said, this is a guy who who's who has had a who had a you know had a remarkable career, um, and they call him a ghostwriter as an obituary. That's not true. His name is on the cover of all those books. He wrote them with other w- w- in conjunction with with established series, some, but mostly taking over for other authors like Margaret mm-hmm. Truman's Capital Crime series. So it's not right. fair to call Don Bain a ghostwriter. He wasn't a ghostwriter. No, his name was on all of them. Yeah, his name was on everything he's ever done. So he yeah. wasn't that. But Don made a mistake in the first Murder She Wrote book he had written because he had never watched the TV show. So he's got Ugh. Jessica driving a car in the first book he wrote. Well, the TV series fans were, were up in arms. She, dro- yeah. she flies a plane. She's never gotten her driver's license. So I, th- this is a fine line 
that I walk. But I have to ask myself, and this, is, this goes, again, not only to the writers out there, but everyone out there. If you're going, I am extremely ambitious, and I am cutthroat commercial. I would go to the opening of an envelope if it helps sales. So anything. <laughs> so you ask yourself as a writer, when you, t- when you have the privilege of taking over a series like Murder, She Wrote, it's not enough for me. It's not enough for me to just say, well, I'm just going to go with the flow. I'm just going to accept the way it is. Right. I want to grow the series, John. And if you're going to grow the series, the way you grow the series is not by writing. By, by, the way to grow the series, I, let me do not do it as a negative. Let me do it as a positive. The way to grow the series is to reach more of the people who are still watching it. A million people a week watch Murder, She Wrote reruns on Hallmark Mystery. There's a reason yeah, why. I'm, 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 it, I'm one of the million, and I've seen them all, and I keep watching and, and them. You can, like Seinfeld, like Columbo, <laughs> like what name of like how many? When you get to Jaw, when you're flipping through the channels and Jaws comes on, or or the, or or oh, yeah. the Godfather Shawshank. comes on, you, yeah. short, you, whatever the movie may be, once you start watching it, you cannot. You say, I'll just watch to this scene. I'll just watch to this scene, and you can just <laughs> press the DVR button, but you don't because that's nope. true. You know, you watch it because it's there. So, you know, it's kind of like um, when I think of what I want people to take out of. Are we talking about movies? I want there's there's one movie I watch every year on the first snowstorm. It's a little weird, I know. I watch the film Airport, and I love the movie Airport because it, it it's got is that the airport is that airport seventy seven. No, the first one with Burt Lancaster and, oh, and, and, the, and Helen Hayes okay. and Van Heflin. Okay. It was so far gotcha. ahead of its time. It was such a, you know, nobody had ever done what they did before. It was, gotcha. but it was so old-fashioned. It made me feel like I felt when the movie came out. I want to give people who read this series. Here, here's the greatest compliment I've been given. This is priceless. Throw everything else out. Here's how I knew that I, how fortunate I was to take it over and how I, had carry, how I was carrying the torch brightly or high enough so people could see it. So many people, the early, the early reviews came in, the bloggers, the first, you know, the, the first stuff that goes up. That's what you see months in advance, weeks in advance, mm-hmm. days in advance of publication. How many people said it made them smile because it reminded them of watching the show with their parents or their grandparents? It, this is a series, and it's interesting, because the series, although you can still get it, watch it every night on, on Hallmark Mysteries, the series has been off the air so long that it has allowed people to remember it so fondly. It has just the right measure of, of quality and nostalgia. So when I say I want to grow the series, I want to incorporate books, the feeling people got. When, I want them to remember sitting on a couch with their parents or grandparents, watching this show every Sunday night, just like we watched Bonanza when I was growing up on Sunday nights. Mm-hmm. The, Disney's Why World of Color before it became the magical world, the world, world of Disney. Right. You know, with the world of color. You know, uh, so I want people who remember that feeling yeah. to read the books and get the same feeling. So I right. think a few people have said almost the same thing. Reading this book is like reading an extended TV ep- – is like watching an extended TV episode. Because if I'm going to grow the series, 
That's the audience to grow it with because there are still new people, believe it or not, discovering Murder, She Wrote. Um, obviously, a lot more people watch television than read books. But more to that point, it's very rare when a book can make you feel something like that. Because the right. vast majority of successful book series lead to TV shows or movies. Right. It's However, the exact opposite. Yeah, this is the exact, opposite. This is the exact opposite. Um, right. And so it, it, it bears a, a, a special responsibility. Well, I mean, and that's the thing. And, and we've we've reached the end of the time all of a sudden. I mean, we went so long. Uh, but, you know, and, and I understand exactly what you're saying because when I read the books and, and when I sit there, it reminds me of those smells. It reminds me of those things that I was sitting down as a 14-year-old in, like, 1984 watching the first one, you know, The Murder of Sherlock Holmes and going through. And still my today my favorite, my favorite uh, episode of all time is still Murder Takes the Bus. And that's kind of, you know, that's in the first series. And that's a little play on the, when, what you just said, the Agatha Christie, you know, and then there were none because they're all stranded at the diner with the snow, you know, with the rainstorm and this and that and, and what was going on. So I can, I, I definitely get that, those things. And the great thing about Murder, She Wrote 2 is, like Law and Orders, you can jump in season 7, season 5, season 10, season 2, and you don't miss anything because every, you know, every episode is a standalone. There's no that's underlying storylines. And that's such a great point because the thing about this book series, people ask me all the time with my Kate and Strong books, do I have to read them in order? I say no, but most people prefer that because sure. you learn the series better because they're sequential, but they're also standalones. Every Murder, She Wrote book is the same. There right. is no sequence to them. And no. that means you, pick it you, up. Can, you can pick up a date with murder as your first one in the series and you have missed nothing. Just like an Agatha Christie book, picking up whatever you want. Yeah. Well, John, hey, man, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Uh, Got to bring you back on so we can have more of an extended talk uh, just about the entire, you know, uh, all of this again. So we, we got to think sometime in the near future when you're not writing so much because you're already in book how about, three. How about next and we week? Got book two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm available. You know me. I'm available, man. Um so, again, give everybody the best place to go find your website. And, again, a, the date, a Date with Murder is out now, came out May 1st, or whatever format you want to buy it in. Go get the book, Mystery. If you're a mystery fan and you haven't read, and you haven't read these series, then you're not a mystery fan. So, John, what's your, <laughs> what's your website? Uh, JohnLandBooks.com, but don't go there. Follow me on Twitter, at John D. Land. That's the best way. I'm on Facebook. You can always check me out. You know, follow me on Facebook. I'll follow you back, all that stuff. But uh, I, I, Google the book. Google the name of the book. Google yeah. me and get the latest information. Don't get what I want to put up. Get what's out there. On, get the, look at the reviews on Barnes & Noble. Look at the reviews on Amazon. Follow what's happening today and yesterday, not what I want you to see from a month ago. And congratulations, USA Today, number one bestseller. I saw that tweet. That was, that was outstanding. Yes, yes. Love it, man. Love it. Love All it. right. All right, John. You have a good one, and enjoy the Northeast, and we'll talk to you soon again, okay? I can't wait. I'm already looking forward to it, John. All right, man. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Take care. So, again, everybody, that is author John Land, and the book is called A Date with Murder. It is the next in the Murder, She Wrote series that is out now. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes Noble, wherever you buy them. However you buy them, you can go ahead and get it. We are going to take just a one-minute here quick break as Matt Ginsburg is on the phone right now holding to come on to talk about his latest book, Factor Man. So here you go. Hold on one second.
All right, everybody, thank you so much for joining us again. That was John Land, and, you know, John and I could talk for hours about that stuff. But we have other guests we got to get to because we got other great authors that brought us some great books. And we are joined here by Matt Ginsberg, and Matt wrote a fantastic book that uh, his publicist emailed us about a couple months ago. And we were like, oh, yeah, 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 but we got to get Matt on here to talk about this. It was called Factor Man. So, Matt, we want to thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing? My pleasure. I'm I'm glad to be here. How are you? I'm doing fabulous. So why don't we just jump right in here? And, um, you know, your publicist kind of emailed us over this, and we were kind of looking over, and then we were like, oh, yeah, this is definitely uh, something we got to talk a little bit more about. So tell everybody a little bit about Factor Man and what you got going on. Factor Man, so I'm a scientist, and mm-hmm. Factor Man is basically the story of a scientist who's smarter than I am, and he solves a problem that I have spent a lot of time fussing over, but he actually solves, finds a computer algorithm that can solve everything, give or take, and then realizes that this is both good and bad news because he can change the world, and there are a lot of people who probably don't want him to. So the book is about how he deals with his own discovery and how he tries to keep himself safe and tries to make the world a better place and make a little money in the process and what happens to him as he does that. And, you know, and the one thing we're noticing about the book is you, you have a lot of different things coming at, coming at um, uh, William and, you know, William Burkett, the, the character. You have a lot of things coming at, at, coming at him, I mean, from the Chinese, the FBI, and, and many different things. How difficult was it to kind of take that web and make sure that you had it, you know, all complete and, and, and the holes and things weren't missing? Because when you start having a lot of those tangents and having to kind of bring them all together, that, that's always a big challenge, I would think, for an author to make sure that you don't have anything drop. So, I mean, that's, that's a great question. And I actually, the reason I wrote this book was because I thought I had actually solved this problem. And I thought I was going to be living Factor Man's life. And I had this plan of what I was going to do to stay alive while the discovery unfolded. And my question was your question. What's going to go wrong if, if I try and do this? And I, I actually wrote the book to write it down. And it turned out to be a great story, I, I hope, which is, you know, it's, it's, which is why I, I wrote it. But mm-hmm. I, I read it, as it were, as a reader to figure out, okay, what's going to go wrong here? And I would find a hole and I would say, oh, that's no good because that's not going to come out like that. And I would fix it and look at it again. And eventually it just all hung together and I gave it to a bunch of people to read and they all said, wow, this is really cool. And the plot is so intricate, but all the holes are filled and it all comes together at the end and everything just resolves like you would hope it would. So an interesting process, but I think filling the holes was, was a large part of the journey and I eventually got there. And, you know, when you write about such a, you know, a subject matter that, probably less than you know one percent of the population can really really understand when you get into it you know there's having to be some uh lack of a better term you know a dumbed down effect for readers like myself who have no idea what you know i hit the light switch the light comes on and i'm like yay now trying to figure <laughs> out why that happened i'm like yeah i i don't i don't care just flip the light switch so when you're writing and you're having to, you know, write something that's kind of so intricate, like I said, that a lot of people don't really understand, how is it to make sure that, because you can read it back and get it, but how many, did you send that to beta readers? Did you send out and say, hey, do you get this? Do you understand this? Do, do you know what I'm trying to talk about? Do you, how was that? So that was, 
that was the most fulfilling. So I, I spent 10 years teaching at Stanford and I learned how to explain things. And I have two kids and I learned how to explain things because they would say, you know, daddy, what do you do? What is it about? And I would tell them. And, you know, there have been a bunch of reviews on Amazon and they've all been great. But the one I actually like the most is from somebody who said, I am not a technical person. I'm inept with computers, but my brother recommended this to me and I just had to read it. And it's amazing because I actually get it. And you can see the details of the science don't matter as much to me, at least as, as watching a scientist struggle with his own creation. So it's sort of like Frankenstein, right? Where a scientist goes away and he comes back and he's changed the world. He's made something ridiculously powerful. And now what do you do? Imagine you are that scientist. Nobody, nobody authorized you to, to do this. Nobody said it's okay to change my world, but you're a scientist, right? You do the science and the science comes out in a particular way. And now you have this, this enormous specter where you've, where you've made the world a different place and you want it to be better as opposed to worse. But how do you, how do you try and make sure that's what happens? And I've been a scientist my whole life. I've faced this issue on much, on much sort of shallower levels, but that's part of what makes being a scientist hard is, you know, you're, you can make the world a different place, but you don't want to make it by large, you don't want to make it worse, right? The people working on the atom bomb, what, you know, the people working on genetic engineering now and the people working on AI and the people who are, you know, that Amazon now knows what you like better than you do. Weird, weird issues because there's a lot of social responsibility that, that scientists sort of, you know, just, yeah, yeah, I trust society to make the world better, but it's hard. Yeah, I mean, and and that is something that is, uh, you know, it's always it's always one of those, like you said, it's very good at explaining things because it always is one of those those hard points when you are the professional writing about your profession basically and trying to make it understandable for, like I said, sort of like people like myself uh, to kind of get that. So it's great that you were able to kind of pull in all those experiences to get them in the book because. Sometimes it's easier to talk about it like verbally than it is to actually kind of like write it down and have the terms and people like have to see them. So that you know, it, it is it always it always it is a fun balance and it's something that you know being um, because this is your first debut uh, book in this in this genre. Am I right? This is my first nonfiction book. I wrote. Yeah. I mean, my kids taught me a lot. I wrote a textbook on artificial intelligence. Right. And. There are a lot of jokes. But that's that much different book. because when you write that, you, people are going to read that or people who want to learn about that. So they're already, you know, I mean, unless some guy's just like, Committed. hey, I just want to read about, yeah. Could see, I mean, one of the guys who reviewed it, that book professionally said he actually laughed out loud as he was reading the book. Uh, and I thought, yes, that means I've, that, you know, because there, it's the same bridge, right? You're still trying to take a topic and make it engaging. And there are other, you know, the textbooks I had in college, they're unbelievably dull. You read them when you can't fall asleep. But I wanted something that actually made the reader want to keep going. And that's the same. It doesn't matter whether you're explaining complexity theory, which is sort of the technical stuff that Factor Man's about. You can be explaining complexity theory to the man on the street. You can be explaining artificial intelligence to a, a kid in college who wants to learn. But it's up to you in both cases 
to make it interesting and make the reader say, hey, this is cool. I want to turn the page. I want to read the next paragraph. And, it's, and it's, I think it's the same skill. It's, it's different in some ways. My kids taught me to, to explain. You know, they, I would explain stuff to them. And, Daddy, I don't get that. And you learn how to, how to make things accessible. And I hope I did that in the book. I think I, I, think I did um, well, because the readers get it. And so let's talk. So, so let's talk a little. You know about William Burkett. Why? What was it about him? What was it about his voice and his character or personality that you felt was like he's the right one to kind of lead the charge and and to to be basically you know your your, your lead person in your debut book? Started everything in Factor Man is is as nearly as I can make it real. So. What I did was I tried to imagine a world where I had solved a problem that I haven't been able to solve, but nothing else was different. So the people in Factor Man, by and large, are real. There's a, a lawyer named Bob Hasday, a, a financier named Brian Finn. They're real people, and they gave me permission to use them. And I needed somebody to, to break the story. And there's a reporter I knew who I love, and he's a, he's a great guy, and William Burkett started with him. And then I sent him an email saying, uh-huh. can I use your real name? And he never responded. So I had, to, I had to tweak the character a bit. And he's a lot edgier. This reporter is actually a really cool, mellow guy. And I decided that it would be interesting if the reporter in the book had, had an edge. And he was sort of always sort of slightly disgruntled with the whole world and making fun of himself and making fun of the people around him. So I, I did that to him, but he started with this real, this real person. And um, I just, you know, again, I tried to make him more interesting and give him an edge and make him sort of funny and then let him start telling the story. Because had and I actually of, solved this, this is the reporter I would have reached out to. And, and, and kind of – now, at what kind of point did did your character start kind of really – becoming, I guess, the character of his own and almost kind of, you know, writing himself because a lot of authors will always say, you know, yeah, I started out, but then the character kind of took over as the book went on and it was like, had no idea that's kind of where I was going to end up when the book was finished. So I knew where the plot was going because I had spent so much time thinking about, it is an intricate plot, and I had spent so much time thinking about the details. And as far as the characters, they did sort of, come alive and now in some cases it was easy because because they're living people that I just put on the page but in terms of Burkett he he did get a life of his own and the more I gave him an edge the more he sort of the character took that edge and got edgier and he was just he just had this kind of in your face attitude about everything he's clearly a nice guy he's you know he he falls in love during the book and and he's clearly just a nice guy, but he's also, he's the kind of guy that, that doesn't totally trust the outside world, not to, not to throw him a weird curveball at any given moment. And he's sort of always looking for the curveball and, and wondering what's, what's coming up next. And, you know, the FBI starts harassing him in the book and it's like, oh, great. But, and his attitude is what, what I wish my attitude would be if the FBI harassed me, right? He's like, yeah, whatever. What do you guys want this day, this day? And it was nice. It was fun. 
And I actually, I, I dropped him at one point and my daughter who had read a piece of it came and said, dad, you got to put him back. He's cool. I like his voice as you say. So, and then I just, I just let him go and tried to write what he would say. And he, he just kept going and, and kept, you know, he kept his edge and, and the voice seemed to be good. Now, and the one thing too, I mean, when, when you're starting out writing a debut and, you know, thriller is a really, is, is a, to me, I mean, you know, thriller's a genre, but thriller's is also a pace. And I always say there's only really two paces that you can really write. You can either write it really, really fast, like a thriller, or you write it a little bit slower, and that's, and that's more of a suspense, even though they're both still in the genre. And normally, you know, people kind of come out and they kind of write the suspense because it, it's a little easier to write. It's not quite as fast. I mean, it doesn't take it. But when you decided that you were going to have a much faster pace of a book, I mean, you had to have a big outline because there's no – I mean, a lot of people write organically, but just seeing the complexity <laughs> of what you had going on, it was almost like you had to have an outline because to have that pace and to have that, you know, intricacy that you have going on in this book, you had to have a giant plot. But the pace had to be a hard thing to keep up with because that's, that, that's a fast thing to do. It's actually interesting. The pace gets faster as the book goes on, and – I actually still don't know whether that's because it's my first book and I wrote it from beginning to end. I'm a very linear guy. So I started at the beginning and I started typing and I just got fat. It got faster and faster. Mm-hmm. I think it, it works well because at the beginning, all the stuff, all the background is unfolding and you're learning what, what the discovery is about and what the problems are. And then as everything materializes everything just goes faster and faster and faster in the beginning of the book there are four main characters and it's written in four first persons and you're seeing them one at a time and you know it's something happens today and something happens a week from now and and at the end of the book the time is being measured in minutes and everything is being recounted often four times once from everybody's perspective because everything is sort of spinning together and going faster and faster the story did that, right? The story sort of demanded because the story is moving faster and faster. And at the climax, when everything is sort of coming together simultaneously, of course it's going to be going crazy fast. Mm-hmm. So I let the story drive the pace and it, it seemed to work pretty well. And when you just, you know, and like you said, so you, you had to have an outline to try to get some of this done. And maybe when you were outlining, you know, you, you bring in the secondary characters and, and you kind of have them wrapping everything up together. But there had to have been one secondary character that really kind of surprised you, that one that kind of stood out and kind of started having his own voice more than you thought he was going to have or she when, when you started writing the book. Who was that for you? Um, it was probably the Chinese assassin who becomes a main character. But when I started writing <clears throat> and I'm looking at the outline thinking, okay, you know, so imagine that you've, you've discovered something that lets you break any code. Who are going to be the most upset? And I, I decided eventually the Chinese would probably be the most upset. They live in a very closed society. And this is incredibly liberating from that perspective. So they send somebody out to, to mess with Factor Man and they were anonymous. And you can actually see that in the book because the, the spy enters quite late. But 
as soon as she appeared on the page, she like took over. And it was like, okay, this is going to be from her perspective. This is my story. And I, I didn't want to make her cardboard and just this evil incarnate. And so I, I tried to write her as a person that you almost have to respect. She, she kills people and you watch it happen, but you almost have to respect her because committed to China. And I wish that, you know, it, I wish that people were as committed to the United States as she is committed to China. And she says at some point, you know, whatever is good for China is good. And that's her life. And then she's just executing on that, but she's not a moral. Her morals are defined by what's good for China. She's smart. She's beautiful. And she gets stuff done. And as soon as she showed up, it was as if she demanded. She said, no, I am not going to be this this faceless cardboard cutout who's out to kill the main character. I'm going to be my own person. And she got, you know, she, so she got a backstory and a history and where did I go to school and why is her English unaccented and everything, you know, she, she got her own self. Nice. I mean, it had to be, like you said, (laughs) it had to be one, I mean, it had to be one of those things that was so gratifying to, to finish a book like this because, I mean, how many years were you kind of thinking about it? So I've been working on the technical problem for like 30 years, forever. The book <laughs> itself took like six months. Oh, because, wow. Well, the, it was very fast. It was very fast. And, but you're right. It was just an unbelievable amount of fun to write. It was just, it was just a blast. Among other things, this problem that's been bothering me for 30 years, I could solve it not by fiat, right? I can just say, okay, this guy just solved it. And, sure. and that problem just went away. And then I can just tell the story. And, you know, it's an interesting story. One guy changes the world and now what? So, you know, the writing was, was very quick. The plotting, um, I don't think I had an outline on paper ever, but I certainly knew all the details of what was going to happen. And right. then it was just a matter of, of writing through them and watching everything accelerate and watching people like Janet Lou take over the book and, and say, okay, I want this to be my story. And there were four people like that and she's totally made up. So I couldn't, I couldn't call her up and ask for help. But the FBI guy who, who is one of the four main characters is modeled on a real FBI agent that my family has known forever. And I, you know, and I called him and I said, keep me honest here and tell me, you know, tell me if I've done something that isn't reflective of how the FBI actually operates. And he did. And I said, Oh, that makes sense. I'm going to go fix that. And, you know, I, I in real life deal with governments a lot. So I know how they operate at some level and how very different they are from the, the regular world. So I get to, I got to put that in. And, um, and as I've said, you know, so factor man, the guy who makes the breakthrough I, is me, a smarter me, but me, and then uh, the reporter, William Burkett, is modeled on a real reporter that I know fairly well. And then, and then you, assassin who who uh, left. Hopefully, you don't know very well. Page for me. <laughs> no, I have. I had no. I I had no role model for her. But oh, okay, good. A lot of the people who've read it say they like her the most. They said they really. They can really see her. Uh-huh. It's a real person. 
and I think it's I think it's because I I was careful not to make her one dimensional. And now I mean she's clearly bad. She's series, bad. She's did you have did you have that in mind when you decided to start writing it? If you're going to just do this as a one off, or did you now have so much fun that you're like, you know what, maybe I can make more of a series out of this? I don't. I want to write another book. I don't want it to. There's no successor to this. Everything. It really everything gets wrapped up, and. I don't think it, there's not going to be, you know, Factor Man Two or something. Um, but I think that that no, but William could maybe of, go or something like that. Yeah. I, I've wondered. So in the next book, uh, he could he could show up again, and um, you know, so it, for me, what makes it fun is imagining what a scientist and typically a lone scientist because I'm this romantic, and it's like mm-hmm. physics in the 19th century where one guy can can disappear into his garage and make a Tesla coil or do something that just changes the world and comes out and computer science is possibly like that now. So in science in general, so one, one scientist, I think, you know, what I will always write about is one scientist changing the world and struggling with the consequences of that. And it certainly could be the case that Burkett is this go-to reporter that, whenever a scientist makes this profound change, he somehow gets caught up in the story and breaks it. So, so maybe he may show up in the next book. I think um, Michael Connolly has always done a great job of that with his different series. You, you see them sort of touching each other in relatively benign ways as characters come and come and go. And he's got, you know, these longstanding characters as well. So I'm not sure. I mean, I, you know, the next book, I will let the characters drive it. And if it needs a, a Burkett, I've got him. <clears throat> so it wasn't something but that I you were thinking not. about. Yeah, so it wasn't something that you were kind of consciously thinking about. It was maybe like at the end when you're finished, like, okay, this came out okay. Maybe I yeah. can. Yeah, yeah, one of those things. I get that. Yeah, yeah I was, absolutely. I was sort, of, sort of sad to lose him. I think, so Harlan Coben, I love reading his stuff, and oh yeah, he's good. I actually prefer his standalone books to his series. You know, I do too. And the I got standalone I, I'm books, with you. Yeah, and the, and it's because so Burkett was perfect for Factor Man. He was the right person to introduce it. And the next book, he's not so much. It's actually the scientist who should be telling the story. So that's it's going to be called The Man Who Died Last, and it's about a biologist, and he should mostly be telling the story. Now, it may be that when I start writing it, I realize that's all wrong and I need, I need Burkett back. And he's, he's happily sitting, he's, you know, sitting on my bookshelf waiting for me to recall him. But um, it feels like, you know, a new, new story, new people. Gotcha. So where's the best place for everyone to find uh, everything more about you and, and more about the book? Is it just your website, mattginsberg.com? MattGinsberg.com is fine. Um, the book is available at Amazon. Yep. I mean, you can Google me. I have, I have this, you know, I'm not a famous person, but I have this relatively bizarre high profile. I make crosswords for the New York Times, and I run a bunch of software companies, and I just do all these different strange things, including apparently writing fiction. Um, <laughs> so, you know, Google me, go to Amazon, go to MattGinsberg.com. It's all the same. The one thing I, I'm, terrible at is social media so i do have a twitter account that i use once in a blue moon so the website social media is tough sometimes i gotta admit social media 
you know, so, sometimes it's like you, you, you're doing pretty good, and then all of a sudden you just see a post, and you're like, all right, I'm done. And <laughs> it's difficult. <laughs> I don't. Without a doubt. It might be because I'm old. I don't get it. I don't understand this famous for being famous society that we live in. I and think I the have word no celebrity desire to be famous being for being used. famous. Yeah, the word celebrity is being, you know, in the 80s, you know, when I was in the 70s, 80s, when I was growing up, the word celebrity meant something. Now it's like you're YouTube celebrity, you're reality celebrity. you're the, And I'm like, you yeah, know what? There yeah, was yeah. Only, celebrities used to be mystique. It used to be one of those things that, you know, that, that you like the Burt Reynolds and the things like that. And you'd be like, oh, right. yeah. Now it's just like, okay, so you get a million views on YouTube for doing crazy, stupid crap that no one – it's just so you're, you're a celebrity. For stupid. You're not doing anything. Right. Yeah, I don't get it either. I told man. my I kids. Call, I call social when, media a weapon of mass destruction. <laughs> so you're not alone. I mean, I told my kids when they were small. I said, if you want this, the goal should be that everybody knows your name and nobody knows your face. Because right. when people know your face, it's bad. Bad things start happening. And yeah. I believe that. You know, so I well, want you know Lee Child. as a scientist or a businessman. Pardon? You know Lee Child. I'd love to be. That would be awesome. No, no, I have no, no but idea you know what the job looks like. But you know who he is. I know who he is. Yeah, that's it. You know, and and when I've interviewed, when I talked to him one time, he had, and and I heard him say he was like he's only been recognized one time. So no one really <laughs> he can walk around and no one knows who he is. You know, it's not like that's Stephen awesome. King where everybody sees his face. He says he's been recognized one time on the street from like his book jacket that someone knew who he was. <laughs> right. No, that would be that would be perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, Matt, I want to tell you, I thank be you able so to, much. You know. Yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to speak to you for the first time. I uh, love the love the book Factor Man here. So, I want to say everyone to go out and get it, and it is available now. Uh, you can get it now right on Amazon. I mean, uh, it's available in, in a hardcover paperback. You get the Kindle, so you can go out and go grab the book again, Factor Man by Matt Ginsburg. So, Matt, thank you so much. You have a good one, and we'll talk thank to you, you soon. You too. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. So like I said, everybody, you go to mattginsburg.com if you'd like to find out more about Factor Man. Um, you want to say it's it's not really a, you know, I, I guess you can maybe say a thinking man's thriller, but it's definitely one that you want to, uh, that you want to check out and, and jump into. So make sure you check it out. And you, like I said, go to Amazon, Barnes Noble, however you want to buy it. The book is available right now so check that out we're going to take a quick short break and we'll be back with our last guest uh Seamus Heffernan and we will see you in just oh I don't know however long it takes me to get back you know whatever
So welcome, everybody, here after the break. We are uh, excited first just to real quick to just sit there and say thank you to John Land and Matt Ginsburg for being on. And we are going to continue here with our last guest today, Seamus Heffernan. And I have to say thank you so much. See, there's always a good woman behind the man. And my wife uh, was able to say, no, that's not how you pronounce his name. It's not his name is Seamus. And I'm like, oh, shit, thank you, because I suck at names. So Seamus Heffernan and his latest book that he's going to be coming on here and talking about is called The uh, Napalm Hearts, or not the, but just Napalm Hearts. And we are very excited to have him on. So Seamus, thanks so much for coming on. How are you doing? I'm really good. Thanks a lot for having me on, man. So like I said, your, uh, your latest book, and I believe it's your, it's your debut thriller book, um, if I yeah, got that yeah, one right. Yeah, it's my first one. Yeah, so... Uh, you know, just like we just had Matt on for his kind of debut, he wrote some nonfiction and he just jumped in. So go ahead and let everybody know a little bit about what you got going on here in Napalm Hearts. Uh, Napalm Hearts is a detective story. It's about an American private investigator uh, who lives and works in London, England. Uh, he specializes in uh, infidelity cases. So while that's lucrative and he's somewhat successful, uh, he's a bit jaded, a bit cynical with the business. And he is uh, contacted by a wealthy member of the uh, the English upper class to help find and track down his missing and much younger uh, hard partying trophy wife. And from there, the necessary complications ensue. Now, the smells of series, because you know you got the PI. You got everything. Is this something that you know with, with Thaddeus with, with Thaddeus Grail? Is this going to be a series? Uh, that was literally the first question that my publisher asked me when they, uh, sure. when they offered me a contract. They wanted to uh, have it continue. And the funny thing is that when I, when I, uh, when I finished, the, when I was writing the book, I wasn't thinking like that at all. And then, well, as often happens during the writing process, you find the story going in directions you hadn't really expected. So at the end, uh, you know, the, the people who kind of make it through to the end, uh, there seems to be a little room there that there could be some uh, uh, some more stories uh, about them. So yeah, I would definitely be interested in continuing it. The, uh, the already have the uh, the sequel is underway. And the reason why I, I never really start out with that question, but the reason why I did is because an American PI kind of going to London on the very first book is one of those things that is like I don't know if the author was like okay, let's think series here because that's maybe something that you're going to say, okay, he's going, to, he's going to be in his town for the first couple books and then kind of go over to London kind of like as the series progresses. So that's why I was kind of wondering, like, I wonder if he was thinking series because he jumped his character right over to London at the same thing. But, um, you know, you kind of explain, you know, that Thaddeus decided that he was kind of tired of the same mundane things and wanted to do something a little different. But yeah. what, who is Thaddeus? Basically, why is he the one that you wanted to have lead your debut thriller book? What was it about him that got you excited? That's a great question, uh, and that's that's uh, that's literally the first time anyone's asked me that since I uh, since I started. Really? Yeah. Just going to tell them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, I mean, it's your debut book. Of course, you want to know why? Why was Thaddeus the man to, to lead it all off? <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, so I can't say that Thaddeus is, is based on me, but certain experiences that he's experienced are, are very personal to me. You know, for instance, I lived in London for a long time, and when you're trying to, you know, when you're trying to, uh, to build your world here for, uh, for any kind of fiction, 
you know, setting is hugely important. And I thought, well, London would just be a perfect city to have, uh, to have something like this because, you know, it's immediately recognizable and yet it's still, you know, because it's such a world capital, it's got all those little dark nooks and crannies that you can kind of get into and really effectively uh, tell a crime uh, detective story. Uh, the reason that uh, uh, that he's American, uh, I, I wanted to write a book about an outsider because that's quite often how I, I felt and I guess any expat feels when they're living abroad. You know, you, you understand where you will live, you understand the customs, you understand the people. I was really blessed with my time there. I've still got great friends over in London, but you, you always feel a little bit like the other. And I wanted, uh, I wanted my protagonist to kind of uh, to, to also have that experience. Uh, so when I was putting the book together, uh, and I knew that I was going to write a, a, a detective story, and I knew that I needed a, uh, you know, a, a protagonist that, that, that if not was uh, enshrined to the tropes, at least respected them. I still was looking at Thaddeus as a guy that I could enough of myself into to give that the story hopefully enough uh, ring of uh, of truth as well as uh, you know <laughs> as well as, uh, as as well as suspense. And what kind of was your you know biggest challenges in kind of writing this book? Um, I mean, was it was it the pace? Was it the dialogue? Kind of was it the plot? Was it the setting? Was it the characters? What what was one of the things that you know you you maybe you kind of went in as a challenge to yourself uh, to really kind of maybe focus on, you know, certain aspects of that. Well, you know, this is going to sound kind of boring, but the actual writing part, I, I absolutely love. Uh, uh, but it's the, the biggest challenge really was just getting the damn thing written. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm sure you know how it is. Like, like real life just gets in the way, you know, we got day jobs, we've got other responsibilities, we've got relationships, yeah. we've got friends. Uh you know, and I was doing, uh, I, I finished it, uh, you know, uh, last year, uh, just after I finished my master's degree. So I was thinking, oh, good, this will help me uh, have a quicker nervous breakdown. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, you're just trying to fit it all in. Uh, so, but it, it, the way I put it, uh, somebody who asked me about that was, it's kind of like the gym. You just kind of say, okay, this is my time. And I'm carving out this time and I got to commit to this time. And I can't cheat myself at that time. You know, if it's going to be, if all those other things in my life that are getting in the way of writing are important, then writing has to be at least as important. So I got to force myself to uh, commit to that. Um, now the actual, the actual process, the actual uh, craft, uh, I'd say that the, the biggest challenge that I kind of faced was I went into it, you know, I had a really clear outline, you know, I was thinking, okay, so this is what's going to happen and A will follow B and these consequences and these stakes. And then I got halfway through the book and I realized, oh man, this is going a completely different direction. So I had to kind of trust that uh, I had to kind of just trust that the, the pants to get was going to uh, turn out okay. And fortunately, I think it did. Yeah, and you know when when your characters kind of start talking to you, like I was just talking to to Matt, um, you know, at what point do, do you think that Thaddeus just kind of took took himself over and almost just kind of started writing himself? Oh man. Um... <sighs> Well, I think at the begin at the beginning of the process, you know, you're uh, you're you're kind of introducing yourself to your characters as much as you're trying to introduce them to the reader. You know, you're trying to get a feel for them. You know, you can have these ideas in terms of what you want them to represent, uh, and you want to be obviously, you know, you want to be conscious that you're avoiding cliches or uh, or anything that's been obviously done over and over before. Uh, I'd say there's a part about halfway through the book. Uh, where the book goes into a completely different direction, like it's a real curveball, and I actually distinctly remember writing that, and it popped in my head. I said, "This is what has to happen next," and writing how uh, Thaddeus reacted to the the phone call, 
And that felt realer to me than anything else that had kind of come to it. And I said, okay, if I'm feeling this and hopefully the people who are reading the book are going, Oh wow. Like this is, uh, this is going down a dark alley here. Let's see where, where, what happens. Yeah. I, I always, I, you know, I always find it fascinating, uh, you know, about the writing process and, you know, and, and hearing authors talk about how they kind of struggle or how they kind of, you know, maneuver through those things. Cause everybody's a little different. I mean, you know, some people, of course, you know, it's either outline or organic. Which one? Which one of the fence were you on on this one? Well, I, w- I went into it uh, with a pretty detailed uh, outline, a, a map, and then it all uh-huh. just went out the window. Uh, and okay. I actually remember about a year and a half ago, um, uh, I was in. I was like I said, I was finishing my master's degree. And my head was just running a mile a minute, and I was dozing off on the couch. And something popped in my head and I jumped up and I grabbed my notebook and I ended up like jotting down like four or five uh, rough ideas for scenes that ended up being the whole uh, second half of the book. So I think that you can plan, you can prepare, and that's great. You, have, you absolutely should uh, you know, have some idea about wh- where you want to go. But I mean, if you talk about writing 50,000 words, it, you know, if you think it's all going to work out exactly the way that you thought it was when you're at word zero, you're kidding yourself, man. You're kidding yourself. Yeah. I mean, that is, I, I mean, it, and I think that that's also exciting for you. I mean, because things can get mundane. You know, you know, some people love the editing process and some people don't and, you know, this and that. But there's always, there, there's always the mundane part of writing a book. I mean, because it is still work at the end of the day. And I think that when you oh, yeah, get totally. surprised as an author, you know, for whatever reason, those things, I think that, it, I think that that makes it fun. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I'm I'm really fortunate that, you know, I, I actually like the whole writing process. You know, um, you know, I love the, uh, you know, I, I love the effort that goes into, you know, how you build the scene, the beats, you know, understanding what would your characters do in this uh, this situation. But I also love, you know, when it's just, it, it just gets crazy and the, everything's just flown and it's flying, it's real rat-a-tat and you know you're going to have to go back and clean it up and you know you're going to have to go back and double check stuff. But you get lost in that moment. That's the best, Matt. That's absolutely the uh, the best. I mean, if you're trying to create something or trying to add anything to uh, you know this well well worn, well trod uh, genre, like you, you got to at least have fun with it. You gotta, if you're not enjoying yourself, you're you're wasting your time and you know your readers too. Yeah, I mean, and, and how how has that kind of been? Because now that you're kind of out and this is your first book and you're kind of having to put yourself out, you're doing the promotion, you're talking to people like me, and you're talking to shittier people that are like me and, you know, not asking you good questions. And so when, <laughs> you know, so, so when you're kind of doing that and, and figuring out, you know, now the marketing side of the book, because I always tell authors, you know what, writing the book is the easy part. Getting the people to buy the book, that's the hard part. So how has that kind of journey kind of been for you? Did you kind of have a marketing strategy outlined once the book was done and then waiting for it to be published? Or did you, you know, how, how did you kind of maneuver to kind of say, this is how I'm going to kind of have to market it on my own? Because, you know, publishers nowadays, uh, they don't do a lot of marketing for you anymore. I mean, that's, that's all on the author to kind of have to do it themselves. Uh, yeah, and that was definitely uh, a steep learning curve. Uh, you know, I, I was, uh, as, you, uh, as you very correctly and accurately pointed out, 
you know, when I finished writing the book, I said, oh, okay, well, that's all over. Uh, my work here is done. And uh, my publisher <laughs> was very quick to disabuse me of that notion. Like, oh, no, no, your work is just they beginning. Said, oh, actually, you, uh, just, you just hit the starting line. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, there's no, and, and you're right. Publishing is completely different. Uh, you know, it, it, it cracks me up when you watch old movies and some writer, you know, gets, gets bored or gets writer's block. So his editor sends him to Paris for six weeks to straighten stuff out. Like, like <laughs> no, yeah, there's no money happen. like that now, Matt. There's not, no. you know, like F. Scott Fitzgerald and Hemingway did not have to worry about their Amazon rankings. Okay. So that's, this is a whole different world here that we're, we're in now. Uh, for me, uh, first and foremost, uh, you know, my, uh, my friends, my family have been overwhelmingly supportive. Uh, just, you know, as soon as I, uh, as soon as I announced through my social media that the book was coming, uh, you know, I was just inundated with, uh, phone calls and texts and, and emails and Facebook messages, you know, just like uh, friends of mine I hadn't spoken to in, in years really rallied and friends of mine have been spreading the word and sharing it. And that's been great. Uh, we did a big launch event here. Uh, I'm calling you from uh, Abbotsford, British Columbia. It's about an hour outside of uh, Vancouver. Uh, the school oh, has a master's degree. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, the, the school I graduated from, the University of the Fraser Valley here, that's where I did my master's last year. Their alumni association hosted and sponsored my launch event. We had a huge turnout. Like they, nice. The school threw all their weight behind it. Uh, you know, and I've been trying to get better. Uh, you know, it's it's weird because you put all this work and effort into building something and creating something, and then you feel awkward and 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 clumsy about trying to promote it. When in fact, you know, as my publisher told me, they said, "Man, you wrote a book, and it's and we're going to publish it, and it's pretty good. Like you shouldn't be shy of telling people, hey, this is out there in the world, and I made this, and you should give it a spin.'" I'm getting there, uh, you know, and we, uh, we've got some good momentum behind the book now, and, but that's definitely something that i got to get a little bit better at myself. Hell yeah, man. you gotta, you got to have, like, Napalm Hearts T-shirts and hats, freaking <laughs> wearing that stuff out, man, get some scarves or something. I mean, yeah, don't ever be – yeah, yeah, tell everybody because th- that's the only – I mean, in today's day and age, everybody is like, you know, they'll come to us as the magazine, and, you know, we're a publisher, and, and the radio, and they're like, so, you know, how do you market books, and blah, 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 and I'm like, guess what, if I knew how to do that, I wouldn't be doing this, because I'd be freaking rich telling people the, the, the secret formula, because there isn't a secret oh, formula. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, absolutely. you see books written like Fifty Shades of Grey, that is probably one of the most horribly written books, but people like the story, so it was extremely popular, um, and you, so you just don't know what's going to hit, what's not going to hit. You know what? What's going to be so popular? What's not going to be so popular? You just you just don't know. And I say so. I think it's great. You know that you kind of, you know, wrote what was true to your heart and not trying to chase some kind of a trend. Because if you start chasing a trend, you are always going to be behind. No, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's like anything creative. If you sit down, going, okay, what am I going to make here that's going to sell a whole bunch? You know, what's going to be a hit? What's going to rip? Like. That's right. just not going to work, man. You're dead yeah. before he even starts. You know, you're 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 slitting your own throat there. It, it, you made a good point there. Like you never know, like what's going to hit. Um, you never know what you know what what's going to have. I guess that pop culture moment. Uh, and, and like yeah. you said, if we could predict that, then you and I'd be very wealthy men. Uh, you know, when I was a journalist years ago, I interviewed uh, Steve Aldini from uh, – he's the uh, uh, music uh, recorder, worked with uh, – he's from Big Black and Shellac, and he recorded in Neuro with uh, Nirvana. Interesting guy. And, you know, his band could probably be huge. 
but the way he put it, he said, man, music is so important to me that we have day jobs. So I never have to compromise anything that I'm doing here. And he said, you never know, like you, you just got to trust that music's going to find its audience. And that really stayed with me and stayed with me for yeah. a long time. I'm like, yeah, like you're just going to write something, you know, if you're not writing it for yourself first and foremost, then forget it, man. Like that's, forget it. You're lucky if anybody cares enough to read it and like it, but you're, if you're, if you're a creative person and you're trying to put to throw something out in the world, it's gotta be for you first and think, okay, this isn't terrible. And then you throw it out there and hope for the best. Yeah. I mean, I think Jimmy Page had had an interview once and was like, you know, yeah, well, we wrote Stairway to Heaven. We thought it was a good song. We didn't know it was like this. I mean, you have no idea. I mean, you know, they wrote other songs that they might've thought, you hear musicians all the time, and it was like, yeah, the, the album company is like coming on to us and saying, hey, you know, there's no hits on this record. You've got to write a hit. And they're like, what the fuck does that have to – what does that mean? We don't just write a hit, you know? <laughs> you think if I didn't know how to write 12 three-minute hit songs, I'd be doing that? Right. What's wrong with you? <laughs> right. You don't think that the, the whole album would be full of that? Yeah, you know, so yeah, – and, and I yeah. think that that's great, but – you know, the other thing, too, is I want you to kind of get into some of those secondary characters because I always ask, you know, authors. Because, yeah, you always have the hero. You kind of have the villain. So I'm going to get you a two-part question that you, to, to go on. So, so give me a couple secondary characters that really got you excited. And then kind of talk a little bit about the, the creation and the formation that you wanted to sit down and have, you know, as your villain. Because I, I'm a villain guy. I mean, you know, the hero's the hero. We already kind of know what the hero's going to do. You know, I watch a James Bond movie, and I know at the very beginning you're going to put him in this situation that he's going to get out of because otherwise the movie would be over. So I always draw <laughs> myself to the villains. It's like I base my, you know, like how good is the villain? That's what I want to know. That's That's what gets me going. So – uh, touch a little on those two subjects okay uh well first uh the secondary character who is uh probably the closest uh, to my heart is a uh, young woman who works with thaddeus uh her name is uh, uh charlotte or charlie as she's known in the book um and you know i know uh, i think that when you're building your protagonist you need a foil you need a counter in a lot of ways uh you know even though she's younger than thaddeus uh, she's 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 not a she's not intimidated by him. She stands up to him regularly. She's in a lot of ways the moral center of the the book. Uh, and you know, I wanted I, I freely admit that as a male writer, I, it's a it's it's a struggle writing believable, compelling uh, female characters. I find, uh, and you don't want to pa be patronizing or trite, and you're trying to to create like this well-rounded, real person. So what I did was. I took bits and pieces from uh, a number of similar young women who I'd worked with in my life, you know, women who were strong and, and independent and, and smart and didn't put up with a lot of BS, but also, you know, were capable of, you know, just terrific generosity and, 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 and being gentle. Uh, and I tried to bring those to, uh, to Charlie and the response from, uh, the response from people, uh, and my friends and, uh, you know, my female friends has been very, very positive. Like they think that, uh, they think, Oh yeah. Like, <laughs> I think that, I think that it's almost like a Don Draper Peggy thing. Some people are reading the book thinking, no, this book's not about that. This is about, uh, this is about Charlie. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, I, uh, I, 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 if we go forward with more, uh, without giving too much away, uh, I, I think it would be very interesting to see, uh, how her, uh, how her arc continues. Now the villain, uh, you know, you're writing a missing person story. 
so the villain in the first place isn't actually a person. The villain is the, the problem. Like, here's, uh, here's somebody we need to find. So as the story progresses, and I don't want to give uh, too much away, but uh, there are, you know, there are forces at work in, in organized crime, and one of those people is, is ultimately the antagonist of the, uh, of the story, uh, and that's uh, as revealed uh, gradually as we, as we progress. You know, I wanted somebody, uh, you know, who had that kind of, uh, that kind of icy calmness, but also that air of menace that's so, uh, that's so necessary. I think at one point, uh, Thaddeus makes a comment about, uh, you know, this whole gentleman gangster shit shtick is getting a bit tired. Uh, so that was, uh, you know, I wanted, uh, you know, like the story being about a missing person, you're not really introduced to all of the uh, the people pulling the levers until towards the end. So I want to make sure that there was a little bit of oomph behind them there. And hopefully we pulled it off, but we'll see. Nice. So where's the best place for people to find out of, about you and your work and everything? And are you going to be in any conferences for people to kind of shake your hand and, and get books signed? Yeah, yeah. It looks like we're going to uh, a BoucherCon in Florida in September. Uh, I'm on the West Coast here. I just did uh, Noir at the Bar in Vancouver. Uh, I think in the summer we're going to be doing a bit of a tour through the uh, Pacific Northwest, hitting Portland, Seattle, uh, Vancouver. Um, you know, obviously a new writer. You want to make friends with as many independent booksellers as possible. Sure. Um, and uh, so if people want to get in touch with me, uh, it's uh, SeamusHeffernan.com, S-E-A-M-U-S-H-E-F-F-E-R-N-A-N. Uh, you can find the book there. Uh, you can drop me a line there. I promise I'll write you back. Uh, you know, people have been very gracious, and I'm more than happy to uh, to answer any questions or uh, or get back to people, as the case may be. Uh, and if you want to just, you know, you can order the book there, or you can find the book on uh, any Amazon site or Barnes & Noble for Kindle and uh, paperback. And the one thing I will say, um, you know, because I'm a publisher and the stuff that we tell our writers and whatnot, too, don't just sit on Amazon and read your reviews. Just write more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, it'll drive you absolutely freaking nuts if all you do is sit on there and follow your Amazon ranking or follow the reviews and whatnot. Kevin O'Brien, oh. a friend of mine who writes uh, several, and he's like a horror kind of suspense guy. The only thing he does with his Amazon reviews are he kind of goes and he skims, and he finds the one-star ones, and he finds the best one-star review and that's the person he kills in his next book. And he goes, that is like my, you know, cleansing. My publisher has, has, has told me several times the importance of, you know, Amazon and the reviews and everything. And, of course, I'm, you know, at the launch we had uh, bookmarks that reminded people, please go to Goodreads or Amazon and, and yeah. leave a review. Uh, and, and, you know, it's a necessary evil. It's the dentist. It like is. You got to do it. it is. And uh, it, it's tough. But like I said before, I, it's something I'm trying to get better at is telling people this. You know, I was at an event uh, yesterday uh, for my day job and uh, somebody said, oh, how's the book going? And I said, oh, it's fantastic. God, at this rate, I'll be able to retire in four or 500 years. We're selling dozens, just dozens. They're flying off the shelf. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, you, you got to keep your perspective, right? And, exactly. As Robert, uh, you know, Langdon said in, as Robert Langdon said in Angels and Demons, he sat there and he was like, oh, if I could have just gotten in here to the Vatican and finished my work, I would have sold 12 copies at the Harvard bookstore. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, Seamus. Hey, well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Uh, wish you nothing but the best with the book. Again, it is called Napalm Hearts, uh, the debut thriller, so make sure you check that out. And uh, Seamus Heffernan is the best place to find out, and that's S-E-A-M-U-S and then H-E-F-F-E-R-N-A-N. Go to Amazon, type in Napalm Hearts, and you'll find it too. So thank you so much, Seamus, and you enjoy, and we will talk with you later. Absolutely, John. Thanks a lot. I really enjoyed this. Have a great day, man. You too. Bye-bye. So, again, everybody, we want to thank you all for joining us. We want to thank John Land and Matt Ginsberg for coming on, too, before us. Uh, John Land, A Date with Murder, the next in the Murder, She Wrote series. Make sure you check that out. And then, of course, Factor Man by Matt Ginsberg. Go check out that book, too. It's been a fabulous show. We will join you all again in two more weeks. Uh, but, of course, you can always check out Beyond the Cover and the Story Blender that we have going on Suspense Radio. So, um, go to iTunes and go ahead and subscribe. And if you have any questions, you want to contact any of our uh, guests, just send over radio at Suspense Magazine, and we will send your question or comment over to them and let them know what you, uh, what you said. So, again, thank you guys so much. Enjoy. Appreciate it. We will see you all next time. Keep reading. Bye-bye.